brought to you by Prep Matters and the Self-Driven Child. Back when most parents went to school, especially parents who have, of high school seniors or juniors, um, the price that was advertised was by and large the price you paid or pretty close to it. And so price represented value. Price represented what you could afford. And between then and now, that whole thing sort of blew up and price mm. became a very different, complicated and murky thing that colleges used um, just to signal quality, but didn't really actually think that they were gonna charge you that number. They were just trying to get you in the door with it. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. Mark Salisbury spent 25 years in higher education as a soccer coach, admissions counselor, data analyst, and academic administrator. He has a PhD in higher education and studies how colleges and universities succeed or fail in helping students learn and grow. Two years ago, Mark started Tuition Fit to empower students and families to solve the lack of college price transparency by crowdsourcing information. When he isn't working on Tuition Fit, Mark is busy raising two boys, pedaling long distances on a stationary bike, and pretending to be an improv comic. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Delighted to have you with us. Um, now, I think of this conversation as uh, sort of the, the, the three parts, uh, the third part of, of the conversations I started with Jeff Salingo, who wrote the uh, Who Gets In and Why, and uh, Ron Lieber, the financial guru from the New York Times, who wrote the New York Times bestselling and Wall Street Journal, I guess, bestselling book of The Price You Pay for College. And both of them profile uh, your work and the work of Tuition Fit and how it helps. Um, so I'd like to start a little bit there um, and then, but, but broaden the conversation a little bit. Um, it seems to me, um, well, I'll start with this. Jeff in his book talks about the, the uh, who gets in and why. Jeff Salingo talks about how really what drives college, college decisions are institutional priorities. And that could be everything from, you know, the left-handed tuba player to, you know, we need more, uh, you know, classics majors to, gosh, we need more money because there's something we're trying to do. And this was, um, I mean, it was, it was super helpful for people who haven't read the book yet. It's also a little bit um, dispiriting to find that at the end of the... <laughs> At the end of the day, there are a lot of hard decisions that are made that often end up being about money, because if you don't have enough tuition, what's his line, you know, that, that you know, kind of tuitions are, are the lifeblood of, um, you know, colleges and universities. Right. Um, and the, then Ron Lieber talks about how for in the, the price you pay for college, rather moving from institutional decisions to individual decisions that we're really trying to figure out, you know, what's the right college, including price. So I'd love for you, because I know you have a deep experience in this, to talk a little bit about money, <laughs> both from a college perspective and, an, and a family perspective, and kind of where things really aren't working well, we'll say yet, as we then talk about how tuition fits going to help us. <laughs> Yeah, that's a it's a it's been such a cool thing to see these two books come out in the same year, uh, not to mention the context in which uh, they arrived. I don't think either author was imagining releasing the books in the year of 2020 crazy, but um, they really pulled back the curtain on this whole system. And for families, um, one of the things that is, is true is that for parents, it's easy for most folks when they start thinking about the college thing to go, 
Well, you know, back when I went to school, it was X. And back when most parents went to school, especially parents who have of high school seniors or juniors, um, the price that was advertised was by and large the price you paid or pretty close to it. And so price represented value. Price represented what you could afford. Price represented your price range. It was a very straightforward thing. And between then and now, that whole thing sort of blew up and price mm. became a very different, complicated and murky thing that colleges used um, just to signal quality, but didn't really actually think that they were going to charge you that number. They were just trying to get you in the door with it, just to say, look how amazing we are as an institution, all the things we provide. And of course, it's super expensive. And yes, we have a huge endowment because it's even more expensive to provide the quality that we provide. So that's why the sticker price is what it is. Families went, oh, that's great. Uh, but can you give me a little bit of a discount? Because you know what? My family income hasn't changed any in the last decade. Uh, yeah, sure enough, we got a bunch of discounts. Here's coupon book A, B, C, and D, right? And so for families, this is a really a, a huge eye-opener for a lot of folks. Um, and of course, it conflicts with all of the other things that we think about when we think about education as a public good and things that everybody should have access to. And it is a little bit of a surprise to find out that, no, it turns out the colleges are, especially if they're uh, getting loads and loads of applications, they've decided to be as picky as they want to be and to really try to sculpt a class and decide you know how many left-handed tuba players they need um, which turns out to be six i didn't know if you knew that but it's six left-handed tuba players at least that's a, according to my polka background in the <laughs> that is what the rule is um thank you for clarifying that for me that's been a burning question and i can cross that off my list now so good that's right thank it's you maybe smoldering i don't know if <laughs> burning out right. um so all of that to say, this whole thing really changes, uh, all of this information really changes the scenario, but the problem for families has been, I use price as a first order filter to decide if a particular college or university is worth considering. I could use price as the first order filter to decide if, it looks like this is gonna be a decent investment, both in terms of the quality of the four-year experience and in terms of what happens to my child, son and daughter after college, both in terms of income and in terms of quality of life. And this is, we use money as a, as a first order filter for a lot of things, right? A house, car, insurance, you name it. And we were accustomed to doing that because of what the internet allows us to do. So when families come to the college search and find that they can't do that, um, in the absence, in that vacuum, all kinds of things start to jump into the fray and make a real mess of things. And it's driving what a lot of the parental anxiety and stress um, that we see now. Mm. Yeah, in, 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 the, in the work that I've done with, a, with uh, Bill Stickstrud uh, and the the self-driven child, we look at the research uh, of a, um, a scientist named um, Sonia Lupien, who heads the Center for the Studies of Human Stress in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And she has this wonderful acronym of what makes people nuts. Yes. And N is novelty. So first time going through this or first time in the last 25 years, sure. U, unpredictability. Oh, yeah, you kind of spoke to that. T is perceived threat of, am I going to end up, you know, not being able to pay for my own retirement, right? Or am I going to, am I going to be a sucker in this whole process? And then S is a low sense of control. Um, and I know that you, I know that a lot of folks know about um, things like net price calculators and other places where we can get information, which seem to give, uh, you know, the illusion of control. Um, and you make the point as, as does Ron Lieber that, maybe not so much. <laughs> so the what's illusion the tell us, of control? Yeah, yes. the illusion of control. So tell us about what was the intent behind, because you, it's such a good point that um, price is 
awfully important, you know, and, and for some people a little bit, for other people a lot, but certainly in terms of making wise decisions about how we allocate resources, that's kind of important criterion. So um, tell us a little bit about those net price calculators. What was the intent and what really, what, what did not get achieved? What's the problem with those? Yeah, well, it's, it's a great example of well-intended um, legislators and rule makers in the federal government. Um, we're talking about a, over a decade ago, folks were talking about this same, very same problem. And we were in the throes of a stage in which it was sort of a borrowing free for all. And um, families were saying, but we need to know what our price is gonna be at a particular institution so that we can decide if it's a place we wanna look. Um, and so the Department of Education, the federal government said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll just require that every school put a net price calculator on their website. And that price calculator met, uh, you can plug in your basic information as a individual family, a student uh, about financial need and about academic merit, because those are the two criteria that institutions use largely to, to determine price. Um, and we'll then spit out for you what your price would be if we accepted you. Great, except there's a caveat at the bottom of every net price calculator that says, um, this is not binding. This is not for sure. Stuff could change. Mm. I could, you know, have had a bad lunch and be a little annoyed when I see your application. Who knows? But um, whatever your net price calculator tells you, I don't have to abide by it. And this was this classic moment of we colleges were required to put this calculator on there, but they weren't required to be accurate and to be beholden to the re, uh, re results of that calculator. And so as a function of that, and you also made the point that 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 those numbers are predicated, those predictions, as it were, are mm -hmm. predicated on um, trailing data, right? Well, so there are a whole bunch of things that play into the net price calculators using prior year data to project for the future, because what the institutions have done over the previous summer is come up with a philosophy and a strategy for what they call leveraging financial aid, which is, in other words, it's a nice way of saying using, that's well, not a nice way, but it's just a complicated way of saying, we're using the money to get the people we want to come to our school. Hmm. And um, the same thing is true then for all of the tools that are not net price calculators, but are then online platforms that would predict your price. They're using two and three-year-old data to predict what your price might be going forward. And that sets up a whole set of problems, which is... Um, a perfect storm when you add a, you know, little pandemic and economic downturn, quote unquote, uh, in the middle of it. <laughs> it makes me think about um, like mutual fund prospectus, this kind of thing of, yes. of past results are no guarantee of future returns. <laughs> right. And so, That's so if I, right. if, if I repeat this back, so what, what would your, what you're telling us is that, Colleges are looking at what they did in the past year or two or three, um, what kind of you know merit aid. But as as, as um, we've talked about, those are really those are really coupons or discounts to you know I'll cut ten thousand dollars off the price of to get this kid to come here and pay thirty thousand, or I'll cut fifteen percent fifteen thousand off to get this kid and to come and pay twenty five. And so those averages from the past, the, the, the those net price. Um, calculators are trying to help us predict those things in the future. But as the circumstances change, as you point out, 2020 being, we hope, quite anomalous, um, we're, we're, we may be flying blind a little bit more than we were even years before. Well, there's two, two other things that add to that or, or um, give it more, even more exciting nuance, exciting <laughs> in quotes. Um, one, if you are shopping where price is a first order filter, right? That's one of the things that you've decided our price range is X. And so we need to find schools that are gonna charge me X or less than that. Um, 
you would want to go to one spot where you could run a search and then identify all of the schools that would charge you that. Mm-hmm. The net price calculator individually located on every institution's website means that for you to do that, you would need to go to every college's individual net price calculator, run the calculator, get a number, put it in an Excel spreadsheet. And then when you're done with that, filter it yourself to find out which ones are, yes, everybody's going to do that on a Saturday afternoon because it's so much fun Hmm. to play with Excel that way. No. Nobody does that because that's crazy, right? Hmm. And so the ordering of things, go to the school first to get their individual price, then go to the next school to get their individual price, doesn't line up with the way that the public would want to use price as a filter. The second problem, the, the second problem is that because colleges want you to apply and the net price calculator is something you do before you apply, their goal with the net price calculator is essentially don't scare you away from applying. So that doesn't mean they're they're not going to give you necessarily the hard, scary truth if that means that they don't get enough applications to then be able to go to the next stage of their admissions funnel. So the, 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 there's a misalignment of priorities, values, interests here in how those net price calculators function for the school versus for the student and family. And as a function of that, the institution is, you know, it's okay if we're a couple $5,000 off on the net price calculator. We were close from the institution's perspective, but our goal was really try to help you Uh, encourage you to apply because in most cases that means money into the admissions coffers, which pays to run the admissions office. And we saw that now with the jump in applications at all the selective schools this last year, Mm. that was a huge windfall for them. No wonder they're going to be test optional from now on. (laughs) That's a million dollars more in their coffers each year as a function of a whole bunch of more applications. Hmm. That price calculator sits in a place where it doesn't then serve the purpose that public policymakers wanted it to serve because it doesn't align with the interests of the public. So if I back that up, in, in some ways, one can make an argument that um, test optional, though there, there's a lot of good that comes out of it, has the incentive of making everyone, giving, giving everyone the sense that I can apply, you know, and, and we just make that many more applications, which by definition means fewer people, you know, fewer, a smaller percentage of people will get in. So we're doing everything we can to open the door in the same way that the net price calculators are probably inclined to be a little bit more of a rosy picture than may necessarily develop for all kids mm-hmm. because colleges and universities have, we're back to Jeff Salingo in his book, um, that, in, that institutions have an incentive to have as many people as possible apply Mm-hmm. for all the reasons from U.S. News to make sure we have enough people. And so this leaves families in a situation of great deal of uncertainty, right? Yes. There's a lot of information, but it, <laughs> as a test prep geek, there's a line from very, used to be very common on the SAT, uh, whereas an, an, an answer choice that would say, it was, almost, it was always answer choice E back when there were five choices. And it would say, it cannot be determined from the information given. <laughs> and that's when I when I hear your words thinking, yeah, here's a lot of information and it gives you the sense of control, but honest to gosh, you really can't figure out what you're going to have to pay when you come around to it. And so people end up making, if I understand this, Mark, your experience has been that people are trying to, families are trying to figure out what colleges they should apply to based on how much money they really have to dedicate to people, to their kids' education. But they, honest to gosh, they don't fully know until they get to the end of the process. And here's where you got in. And oh, by the way, I hope you enjoyed the meal. Um, This is what the price is actually going to be. Would you like an extra dinner mint? Right. Right. Exactly. And and this is one of the things that, I mean, there's such a, such a great example of, of the psychological phenomenon known as choice overload at the mm-hmm. early stage of the process, right? Um, so many colleges, so many brochures, so many look the same, 
it's totally overwhelming. So just to keep your sanity, you just grab a list of schools you've heard of. And mm-hmm. now all of a sudden, as Jeff Salingo talks about, you've now overly narrowed your list of schools and you've pinned yourself because now everything else is off the table. You're not looking at them anymore and you're just looking at these. You don't know what your price is going to be. Maybe you've done a few things to figure out whether you'll get in or not. And then you submit a bunch of applications. And if you're lucky, you get into most of them. And then the truth comes out, which is what is now becoming much more uh, well-known is, okay, I applied to 10 schools, got into eight. Awesome. There's only two of them that are price point anywhere close to what I can afford. And so my options went that I can seriously consider or just vanished. Mm. And in that scenario, guess what becomes suddenly much more possible, rationalized? Borrow a lot more to figure out how to pay for some of the other ones that would have you would have tossed out as, as a consideration if you'd known that information at the beginning. And you may very well have applied to a whole bunch of different schools had you known what the price was going to be, because you now have no options when you wished. And the whole point of having a multi-stage choice process mm-hmm. is so that at the end of it, you have lots of choices and you are in control of your future and you feel like you know what, I know how to pick balancing the variables in any one of these things. And I know what stuff I'm going to have to add or give up on if I make choice A or choice B, but I'm comfortable with it because I know what I need to know. So let's talk a little bit about what, what gap tuition fit is closing and then what this means, not just for us as individuals, but, uh, but, but at almost a societal or structural level. So, so for people who don't know tuition fit, can you give us the, the thumbnail sketch on, on, on what yeah. gap it closes? So all those prices that we all wish we knew, they're all in the financial aid award letters that students get every year by the millions. And they're sitting on kitchen counters all over the country. And the problem is they're sitting in piles of one or two or three or five. And every student only sees one or two or three or five. And that's the sum total of their range of options. So why don't we just find a way to share them all to one place and organize that data by the way that colleges generally organize prices. And we have essentially a you show you show me yours, I'll show you mine free exchange so that when you share what you've received from the colleges you applied to, You now get to see the hundreds of offers that students like you receive from whatever colleges they got into. And it becomes a giant Kelly Blue Book for college pricing, where now you can see what other prices are out there. And you can then use that data from the very beginning of the process, because you can look at the last just previous year's prices to see what colleges are in my price range and set up a list that way. And then at the end of the process, now you know how to compare the prices that you do receive and sort of put them in context and say, you know what, that I could probably find a cheaper price, but I'm comfortable with this price because I know what I know and I can put it in context and see that, yeah, it's a fair price. I'm good with that. Or I'm going to go and make a phone call because I can see that the price I'm being asked to pay is outside the realm of what seems fair to me. Hmm. And what I, what, one thing that popped to mind for me, I don't know if you know the, the, the research in the, in the book Scarcity, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and basically what happens when people don't have, when, when people are, are, you know, pigeon, right, you know, or, or constrained by scarcity. And so that includes not only things like not having enough money, but also not having enough choices. I mean, mm-hmm. you talked about the paradox of choice, not having enough choices and not having enough time. And it seems to me that when, if, if people can engage with a process, and I think tuition fit handles this really nicely by which they have that information at the beginning, we can have an actual understanding of price and not get hoodwinked, have that be a first order, as you say, a first order criterion to help us figure out choices. So, so that when we get to the end of our senior year and have to choose, we don't have two choices and neither of which, you know, is, is really optimal. Right. We have multiple choices that, that, that fit within us. Um, and we're, we're not stuck of choosing something that costs too much or something that, that provides too little. I'm so glad you brought in the scarcity research here because it really is perfect for this particular scenario. 
and what families do now that they sort of know that that possibility exists down the road and there's nothing they can do about it is in, in the perception of nothing you can do about it in the college search process. Then what families do is all kinds of things to try to, to sort of protect against that threat. One of them is, is just to sort of say, well, I'm going to really just look at a certain set of schools that I know will be in our price range, even if they're really not a great fit for my son or daughter, or I'm going to just go for the moon and then scramble to apply to a million scholarships. And if there's scams, so be it, but I'm going to do whatever I got to do to throw mm. this thing together as opposed to then being able to really be precise and find out that in fact, um, there's not nearly the scarcity in the higher education marketplace that the public oftentimes thinks there is. Um, but it's a function of, yeah. Talk a little bit more, talk a little bit more about that. Cause that may, yeah. if people are only reading headlines, it may feel like, you know, what is the Yogi Bear? And, 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 you know, no, no one goes there anymore. It's too crowded. You know, they, <laughs> you know, stay, I think Onion had something about Stanford drives admissions rate to zero, right? Yes, uh, so right, no, exactly. And very proud of that admission rate, by the way. Understandably. They finally, they finally got there. That's right. Um, so there's, there are, the, there are the schools that we've all heard of that have mm -hmm. these incredibly low admission rates. And those numbers got blown out of the water this last year by, um, you know, UCLA and NYU and other places that had over 100,000 applications. Um, they didn't add any dorms. They didn't add any buildings. They are taking the same number of students that they would have in any other year. But now they've got twice the number of students to take from, right? But that is actually a very thin slice of what the rest of higher education looks like. On average, the acceptance rate across higher education is about two-thirds, about 67%. And if you throw out those schools that really skew the data, that have this long tail of incredibly small single-digit acceptance rates, it's more like 75%. Um, and by the way, of those schools where it's 75%, a lot of those students who didn't get in, it's just because they didn't finish all the forms. It's not really because they were applicants that to be considered. The reality is, is that there's opportunities to go to college for virtually everybody, um, but it's about what schools you chose to apply to. And so when you hear families say, gosh, college is so expensive. And people say college is so expensive. Oftentimes what they're doing is they're conflating two concepts. They're conflating the colleges that I applied to and got admitted to are super expensive. Mm -hmm. And because that's all they know, they generalize to colleges across the board versus all colleges and universities are too expensive. That's a very different statement, right? Hmm. But because we all do this sort of we, we have a system that perpetuates the blind man and the elephant story, right? And so everyone sees this tiny slice and thinks that's representative of the whole thing. And then that gets published and republished and talked about um, over beverages at the Saturday afternoon barbecue. Mm -hmm. That's now what people think. And the data doesn't really even support that. So I, I've seen your your wonderful TEDx talk, folks. You should watch this. Um, and you can explain a little bit more about how the data doesn't support that. When we look at what, you know, there's this there's that kind of sticker shock and and you know front of the the paper kind of oh my gosh, you know, it's a million dollars to go to college. Right. And you actually look at the data of of what not the cost of college, but the price that people actually pay mm -hmm. and what the, what, what, what the numbers have been over the past, you know, I think it's 20 years that you've done, but you, you know, fill, correct, fill me, fill us in on, the, on what those numbers actually look like. Yeah, it, it is a really interesting thing when you dive into it. And there's a, there is a, a good and not so good story to be told here. Yes, the sticker prices have gone through the roof, right? They've just gone over the moon across the board. Private institutions were the first to do it. Then public institutions did it with their out-of-state prices. And then as public funding for public institutions started to dry up, even the in-state prices started to just go up. But that's not the price that students actually pay. And in the mid-90s, 
higher education policy folks started to track and say, wait a minute, this discount thing's starting to be pretty prominent. We should look and see what that is. And it was, you know, 25% on average. And they're, oh, okay, well, it's a, well now <laughs> the discount rate on average across all institutions is about 55% off of this crazy sticker price. And what that means is on average, college prices have gone up about 250 bucks a year, which really isn't all that much except for this, those are the averages. Hmm. And average is a representation of a whole bunch of data points, right? And if the average is a representation of data points that are just barely to the left and just barely to the right, you're like, okay, that average is pretty representative. Um, but if that average is a representative data, of data points from zero to $80,000, hmm. and that average is 35,000, well, that's for one year of college, by the way. Now, all of a sudden, you can be $10,000 on either side of that average easily. And that has massive repercussions for a family, right? Yeah. So that is where the mess has been created um, that has made all of these numbers that get collected every year kind of not so helpful for the actual the individual family. Hmm. It makes me think if you've read Todd Rose, the end of average that, you know, basically no, no one lives the average. Right. So, so, so if we, if that's a terrific insight, Mark, and do you happen to know, um, can you talk about, okay, there's this average, which has gone up just a little bit and we can all feel like we could swallow another 250 bucks a year, but clearly there must be people who are winning and people who are losing. Mm-hmm. And when, when we get, when we get off that, that average, um, who's, who's losing in this process? Who's winning in this process? Yeah. Who's getting stiffed, who's getting stiffed with a a, a college education that's, that's more than they can handle, mm -hmm. right. Or more than they should be paying. Is is there a data on that? Well, the, the, certainly the folks for whom they're in the top 10% of income brackets, um, for them, things are not nearly so dramatic as uh, folks who are uh, scrambling to figure out how to pay a rent every month, right? And um, there's been some really interesting research in trying to assess what proportion of institutions, uh, colleges and universities are affordable for the lowest income brackets. Mm -hmm. And there's still a decent percentage of institutions that meet that bill, but they're not evenly distributed around the country. There's a Mm. bunch of states where there's not a single institution that meets that qualification. Um, And the folks that oftentimes get the most pressed or the most squeezed by this are the families in the sort of muddy middle, right? Where they're in uh, social situations, uh, communities where there's a lot of expectations to go to college. There's a lot of expectations to sort of be able to say, I was accepted into a school that you've heard of or somebody else has heard of. Um, And there's a real sort of um, failure Hester Prynne tag to saying like, you didn't get to go to college, right? Um, it wouldn't be an A, I don't know what letter it would be, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so under that pressure to be able to say, not only are we going to college, but our son or daughter is going to college that you've all heard of, um, folks do what we talked about earlier and narrow their list of colleges early and create a list that is names they've heard of. And then in doing so, what they don't know they've done is pin themselves so that their options of what they can afford or what's in their price range, what's reasonable for them, has now gotten to be very small already. And then they get to March and April of senior year, they get accepted, they get a couple of award letters back. And after shuttering, it's okay, well, we got to figure out a way to pay for this. And rationalization kicks in and a little bit of panic. And next thing you know, they've borrowed a Parent PLUS loan. They've Hmm. done a bunch of extra stuff. They've taken out a second mortgage on the house. They've borrowed against the retirement. And everything's banking on that son or daughter having a salary enough to pay back those loans. When the student's sort of a... I think I might major in the humanities. Uh oh. Wow. You know, and a couple thoughts run, popped to mind for me. One, of, of, um, 
Paul Tuff's book, The Years That Matter Most, and looking at, um, I'm forgetting the boy's name who's from rural, I think it was West Virginia, I'm trying to remember who was, you know, looking at Lafayette. Anyway, you know, a, a really talented kid from a family that that had not been college going, so didn't know that process, um, you know, and a, well, a whole bunch of folks in, in this who were academically capable, talented kids, but in, in a... Um, if not precarious, a, 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 a financial position where there was a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that occurs to me is that when you end up with choices, as you described, Mark, where you thought you were going to pay, you know, $12,000 a year, and all of a sudden it's $22,000, you are taking all these loans. That has a really long-term, really big long-term impact on families, but also has a real impact on the likelihood that kids actually persist and yes. graduate college because it's all of the stress and strain under kids. And most of them probably have enough stress and strain. And when things get tough, Paul describes a story of a, of a young woman who's, you know, was, was having a hard time. And her mom said, well, kind of just come, when, sweetheart, just come home. You can, you know, kind of bail. And you have to imagine that uh, that can pop up if parents are thinking, gosh, it saved me 10,000 bucks. If you came back and went to community college rather than you know whatever place you you're you're at, um, and I'm wondering how much if you know the data, how much of that leads to not only during the middle of the process, but also at the start of well, just start at community college rather than of leading students to what what we describe as undermatched people who are academically able to be at a, a more rigorous place, but end up choosing or falling into a place that's an undermatch for them because. They didn't. They they didn't navigate the the price of college well enough. So there's a, there is a a lot into what a lot of packed into what you just asked. Sorry. <laughs> but there's but there's a lot of research on this stuff that's yeah. really interesting. Um, first of all, there's a whole bunch of research on particularly uh, low students that are coming from lower income backgrounds and first generation families, where when things start to get difficult, um, there is a very human parenting tendency to say, look come home. It's okay. Maybe it wasn't meant to be anyway. And one of the things that we see play out for students, um, because something like 70% of students who drop out say they drop out because of some sort of financial issue, right? So those numbers are huge. Um, And in the work that I've done, um, we've seen how that sort of specter of the financial weight sets in motion a thinking in the back of the student's mind where it's sort of like, um, you know, sort of fertile for all the wrong reasons, right? So there's always this thing of like, ah, oh boy, I don't know, this is gonna, this, I don't know if this is gonna work, this isn't a great, because it's really expensive and it's putting us all in a difficult place financially. And then the first thing that goes wrong, the student doesn't do well on a test, roommate doesn't work out, whatever else, that's confirmation mm-hmm. of that initial fear. And then the student sort of become, you know, sort of pulls back a little bit and they're just a little bit less engaged and less involved because they've heard that confirmation of that first fear and that, that reduced engagement perpetuates another disappointment that perpetuates more disengagement. And pretty soon the student is absolutely, I'm out of here. This is just not working for me. It was a bad fit to begin with. I had a terrible experience with friends and, blah, blah, blah. And all of that sort of spins from that initial, I'm not sure this is the right fit for me. And it's so interesting to see that stuff play out. Um, The one other thing that I want to throw in there is that notion of what you mentioned is the undermatching piece. Um, There's, there's a lot in there that's probably worth dissecting in another conversation. (laughs) But what we know about student success in college and after college is that it's what you do in college that really drives the success afterwards, regardless of the school you go to. So there's a lot more similarity between institutions and there's a lot more um, variety of of student types within a single institution than there are between institutions. And what that means is it's the student who plugs in and gets engaged and really sinks their teeth into their learning experience that gets the most out of it and really grows. And so even a student who might go to an institution that is um, maybe they're one of the stronger students at that institution, 
two of those students at the same kind of academic caliber, one can get a ton out of that experience because they really dove in and they were so excited and engaged and plugged in. And the other one that sort of pulls back and doesn't, and that's what's gonna differentiate whether uh, those two students really get the most out of that educational experience or not. All of that to say, what you want students when they go to college, you want them to be absolutely all in, right? Hmm. Absolutely committed. This is it. This is right. Yeah, stuff's going to go well some days. Some days it's going to be bad. Oh, well, I'll work through it. We'll manage it, but we're going to get there. I'm all in. And the more you have those voices in the back of your head that says, I don't know, the more you set in motion the exact opposite of the things that we want students to do to make the most of college. I love that point. I'm also thinking, I'm back to Paul Tuff's book, uh, The Years That Matter Most, that the experience, your point about, you know, different students, two students can go to the same college and have very different experiences. And one of the things that Paul points up uh, in his book is that there are different colleges do a better job mm -hmm. with different populations, specifically when you're looking at lower income, first generation to college kids who are going to have, who are more likely to have financial pressures that you've mentioned are more likely to have some doubt because if, if, if everyone you know has gone to college, then of course, it's just an assumption that I belong to college because that's what my people do. My families, my friends, my people of my school. But if that's not been your experience, then it's a lot easier to have that self doubt and which leads to stress and all sorts of bad things um, kicking along. Uh, and Paul does some a really deep dive at the University of Texas and the the interventions that they have there. David Laudy is one guy and, and, and looking at things that really changed the mindsets of kids who are coming in. And they had, you know, students who were just like them, you know, also low income, also first gen, also kids of color saying exactly that, you know, this is going to be hard um, and you're going to, I don't know, you're going to bomb a test, but here's what this really means. And they basically inoculated these students against future stress, you know, because if not, not saying this is all going to be great and seeing, you know, seeing a, a, a C minus as evidence that you don't belong there, but is this is part of your part of your process? Um, and so, what that makes me think about, Mark, is <laughs> how it's hard because the information is scattered. But everyone who's involved in education, every good college counselor, talks about fit. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to go. Oh, they're just trying to counsel me out of the school. They think, but but but, honest to gosh, you know the the experience that you can have at individual students can vary widely <laughs> and wildly. Mm -hmm. And to really spend time, not just looking at the cost, but actually, you know, what you'll experience there. I and I love Ron Lieber's book when he talks about what's worth paying for, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what's really worth paying for? Because, you know, we talk about education as this, is this great investment, right? In future prosperity. Well, is anyone who's been, you know, ever invested, you know, not everything goes to the sky. Sometimes you invest and that's a clunker and like, well, that was $1,500 I could have spent in another way. Um, and when we look at the enormous cost of college to really be thinking about what are we putting into this? How much can we put into this? How much makes sense given that I'm, you know, 53 and I need to retire and I need to put money away um, as well as what do I want to get out of it? So I know you and I talked before about, um, what happens when families sit down and have this conversation about not where do we want to go, where do we want you to go next year? So I'm not at the Hester print of parenting um, and I can put that bumper stick on my car, but where do I want you to be? Where do you want, where do we want you to be at age 30? Yeah. I, and I love your thinking on this. And I'm wondering whether you could just sort of walk through this because I think it's such a helpful and healthy way to really frame a converse, frame conversations about what is for every possible reason, a kind of stressful process for most people. Well, there's a lot in there that I, that I'm just. Tell us about the 30 year, yeah. the 30 year kid. I mean, I just, I just, I just think yeah. it's brilliant. And can you, can you well, just. Yeah. So <laughs> I think that the way to think about this is to play the long game and mm -hmm. To do that, to be successful in any sort of complex endeavor, it's start with the end in mind. And 
I think the end that is really valuable is, and I picked the number 30 because it's easy to spell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's a point at which, when, as a parent, and I have a 20-year-old son. So I'm, okay, 10 years out from now, when he's 30, um, okay, where do I want him to be? Uh, not geographically and not socioeconomically, but where do I want him to be? It's a big picture as a person. Um, and I imagine several things. I imagine that he's, you know, sort of well into a couple of stages into really finding out who he is, his purpose, his, the, the thing that gets him up in the morning, the thing that really uh, drives him to do good, to help others, mm. and really have a sense of who he is and how he's contributing both in his small circle and then broader circle. And that might be with a family, it might not be, but it's very much sort of thinking about who he is and what he has the opportunity to do. And then with that, is inevitably becomes um, what's his financial situation like? Is he in a position where if a great opportunity came up to him out of nowhere, he's in a position to say, you know what? I can chase that even if it doesn't pay what I'm making now, because that could really make a difference for people. Or is he in a situation that says, you know what? I'm paying $1,800 a month in, in loans that I owe for another 10 years. I'd love to do that, but I can't. Um, mm. which of those do I want for him? And of course, I want him to be in a position where he has that kind of flexibility and freedom. I'm not saying I want him to live in a huge mansion on a coast somewhere. I'm just wanting him to have that kind of flexibility in life. So if I walk it back from age 30 and that sort of rough out of, of my own son, and I get to age 20, let's say 23, we're just finishing undergrad. Well, what does that need to look like in order for us to get to 30? Well, he needs to have learned a lot in college, learned a lot about a lot of really interesting things, things he didn't know anything about, and learned a lot about himself and grown up a lot and learned about more about what makes him tick and what makes him click with others and what makes it hard for him to click with others when that happens and what, how to deal with that. And I want him to be in a position where financially, He's not looking down the barrel of 20 years of crazy debt. Mm. He's not looking at, you know what? I have to find the job that pays a ton. I don't care what it is because that's the only way I'm going to pay back the loans that I've taken out. I don't want that for him because then he's never going to get to that spot that we just described at 30. And so if, I've, if I'm thinking about it that way, then we step back a little further to 18, which a couple of years ago for him, but... 20 now, at 18, how do we think about, how do we get him to that spot at 23? And the part about the fit question that we, I think really shortchange is if you think about two puzzle pieces that fit together, both of those puzzle pieces contribute to that fit. Way too often we talk about the college fit and we put it all on the college. And we don't do nearly enough to talk about how does the student fit, right? And yes, there will be some places where it's just not a fit. No matter how much I contort who I am and try to develop different skills that I don't currently have and everything else, that's not going to be a fit. When I went to college, I had no clue what I was wanting to do. I took seven years to do undergrad, changed my major nine times. I think I still hold records somewhere. And it and, and it was all in the humanities, by the way. I, as you might tell, I have a thing with words. Um, too many of them, too fast. But it would have been a terrible thing for, to send me to a all engineering school. I could have, you know, every tool in the toolkit to try to fit in there, no, wouldn't have worked. But, so I'm, I'm not saying that the school doesn't have any part of the, but, it, but we don't talk enough about how the student fits mm. into that piece. And then we don't talk enough about the long game. And if you think about this in terms of the long game and you think about it in terms of the kind of person you want that student to be when they finish college, one of the things you want is you want them to be resourceful, to have real sense of agency and have some sense of control mm -hmm. in who they are and where they are going and what they can become. 
And um, that's actually a really good thing to help students develop, right? And it's worth thinking about how that all then lines up in order to sort of knock those pins down, walk it back from age 30 to age 18. I think it really changes the way that you think about what the college decision, the college search process is look, gonna look like, what that college decision is gonna look like, and what the way you start thinking about how do you prepare to succeed in college looks like. Hmm. I love it. I love it. You know, it's so interesting. We always talk about, you know, education is the most, most important, most valuable, most worthwhile investment that we can make. But there, you know, there are limits to there are limits to everything, right? And and you want to the the idea of of making smart investments, um, because uh, you know, again, the thing that I worry so much about is watching kids and families. I know a lot of people have done this, where they start at a very expensive school, even a model expensive school, and it's the it's there's too much financial pressure, or it's not the right fit. The kid isn't doing it for the right reasons, and and they come home and it's a really expensive way to spend a year's tuition, you know, on six or eight or 10 weeks of school. And then, and then where are we? Um, and because I think that you and I would share an interest that, that ultimately we would like as many people as possible to be, as, to be educated, including college, ed, college educated, if that's right for them. And it's not, it's not the only path to success, but for, for, for in, increasingly, um, it is kind of, the, uh, if not the path, a path. And we want kids who can do the work of college to actually do the work of college and graduate with something to show for it. Because, I mean, it's good for them and the, to your point, Mark, the lives that they're, they're launching. It's good for their families to feel like that investment paid off and not be holding debt for a, for a, a degree that never happened. And, and ultimately, it's good, for, it's good for our whole society. I mean, this is one of the things I'd love for you to talk about for a moment. Um, is that from my perspective, for all of us to develop, for us as a society to move away from, and I know Paul Tufts talks really eloquently about this, to move away from thinking of education as an individual investment to one that we as a society by, I don't know, sharing information more broadly, <laughs> right. you know, by, by, by not trying to steer people to wherever they'll pay the most money, but to try to, to, try to help find that right fit. Um, so that we're using resources well and we're developing young people well because it's good for us as a whole darn country. Ultimately, it's a real problem for us as society if talented, you know, black and brown kids who just happen to be first generation to college don't get to or through college because the odds are stacked against them or they don't have the information that they need. And it's a problem if kids go to the wrong college because they just think that they should and they don't know what to do. I mean, it's just... Ultimately, you know, for us to develop all the talent, you know, whether it's minimal talent or it's, or it's, it's high talent, to develop this for all of us as a society has got to be better for us as a capitalist, democratic, you know, country. Um, and I love, I know you've done some really elegant um, academic papers, sort of, which I think touch on that, of what's the benefit for us as a society if we do this better than we currently are to help more people be as educated as they, as they can or want to be. Well, there's, I mean, we need higher education now more than ever as mm -hmm. a society, just to be a functioning democracy, we need education. And we need education to be uh, the something that really does help people um, experience mobility, socially, economically, uh, in, in, in all kinds of different ways. And there, the reality of the times that we're in right now, we just, we need education. We mm. just need it. And we need it in a way that really does develop a person fully. Um, yeah, it's great to have boot camps and it's great to have many certificates. Those are wonderful things to do and have, and we should keep doing that. But that can't replace the much more um, in all-inclusive experiential learning that, um, in-depth learning experience can be hmm. four years of college, two years of college. Um, the other thing you mentioned this just very briefly, and in my head, I was thinking about, you know, we can't have a system where low-income, first-generation, historically marginalized groups can't access education, 
or mm-hmm. when they access it, they access it in such a way that the financials or pressures are such that they don't finish. Or what we have seen increasingly is um, they access it, they finish it, but then they are completely tied mm. in such a way that they can they can't now exercise the learning and growth that they have developed, and that is They're indentured gra- graduates. In many ways, that is exactly what we see for a whole generation of people that are now in their 30s and 40s. And it's a pretty sad thing to see that. So this is where higher education folks, I love them, spent 25 years in that world. Um, But the institutions are not made to change. They just aren't. They just aren't designed to be able to be nimble and shift and adapt to the world that we live in now. We as a public, we have, I think, a responsibility to help higher education institutions change and because we need each other. And that is where the Tuition Fit Project starts is if we create the resource of real price transparency that empowers the public to have the information that along with the kinds of conversations that you were already talking about, that we were talking about, the need to happen, the, what do you do with this data, put it in the context of each individual making the right choices for each family. Um, but if we have that information created, what we then set in motion is a way for both the public to make better choices and um, make the most of their education, get the more value out of it. But we also create a way for institutions, higher education institutions, to start to innovate where we get them now to focus far more on what are the outcomes that we provide at College X for the price that we charge to, to, to meet those outcomes? And could we meet those same outcomes for a little bit lower price? Hmm. And could we meet those outcomes for a little bit lower price? Because right now we just talk about you got to drop the price. You got to drop the price. But to what end? Right? It Susan Donarski, who's a very, very smart um, higher education economist, said, you know, free college doesn't matter if it's crap. <laughs> <laughs> and she's right. This is true, right? It's not, it's ten, not- <laughs> one for ten dollars, two for twenty-five. No, thank you. I don't want it. That's right. In fact, yeah. I will pay you to come to our college. It's that yeah. bad. That's not what we want. We we want higher education, college experience, degrees, all of that stuff. We want it to produce quality outcomes, but we need it to be measurable or organizable in a way that you can say, all right, we can meet that outcome for a little bit lower price. And then somebody else innovates and goes, you know what? We could do that same outcome for a little bit lower price. Right now, the colleges can't even do that because they don't even know what they charge. Hmm. And Hmm. that's what we as a public, we have an amazing opportunity to fix this and to do it in a way that really has a tremendous potential benefit for our whole society. And it doesn't cost us a dime to do it. Hmm. Better outcomes for families, better outcomes, colleges, maybe a little bit of growing pain there, but ultimately better outcome for us as a society. I think that's where we need to go. I really do. And, you know, for folks who talk about, well, then the colleges would have all this information out there. They think back to 20 years ago when the car industry was disrupted by this very same thing. Hmm. And the car industry had lots of nice folks walking around the lot trying to sell cars and um, the car industry realized, you know what, we could actually not have as many of those sell some cars online. People actually ended up paying less for cars and there's research to back that up. And it turned out that people still bought cars and they actually both industry, the industry and the public did okay. We, we, we managed through that very, very rough stretch where the car industry had to adjust. Okay, good. I'm fine <laughs> with it. But the point is, is that without the data, the industry couldn't innovate. Hmm. And that's, 
part of the problem here. Higher education institutions can't really innovate because they don't have a way to use data to organize how would they then improve what they do and measure how that would change in cost. So lower tuition, a better fit, and you're hoping those colleges that you so desperately want to gain admissions to. <laughs> I love it. Well, Mark Salisbury, um, thank you for your work. Um, it's, I mean, I've, I've, I've loved reading your papers uh, and I love what you're doing with Tuition Fit. Um, you know, as a, as a guy who's sort of a, um, an aerostats educator uh, with this, all this test prep stuff, um, I remain keenly interested on, on bigger and more important questions like the ones that you are grappling with and more importantly trying to solve. So um, thanks for making time for us uh, and thanks for the work that you are doing with Tuition Fit. Thanks for the really kind words and I, I really appreciate the conversation. It's just so much fun to have chats with you and I'm looking forward to many more. As am I. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Thank you.